0: Um, If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Micah. I'll give you time. You know, if you listen to uh, much good preaching, Bible preachers, it doesn't take very long before you'll start to hear certain concepts and truths repeated. Things like the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, the the omnipresence of God. And all that really means is that that God knows everything. God is all-powerful. And God is always present. And and that makes sense. Scripture tells us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is is a God who has no beginning and and who knew the end from the beginning. He is a God who is the beginning and the end. Uh, And we hear those truths, and and we typically will nod in agreement to those when we hear the preacher talk about them. We hear preachers talk about the the truth of God's sovereignty. And and, and the acknowledgement that, that God is God, and he is the only God. He is the God that when Moses said, who do I tell him sent me? He said, I am. He is. He is the God. He is the sovereign God. And what that means is that he doesn't ask or need any one of us to help him along the way. Yeah. He's in charge. God is in charge. And, and you know, while those truths and those statements from the Bible and from, from a Bible preacher will typically get nods of agreement, they'll sometimes get an amen or maybe a holy grunt saying, yeah, that, that, that's right, I understand that. Far too often, if we're honest, if we're truthful, the reality is that that we live in agreement with those truths for a few hours on Sunday, maybe on on a Wednesday evening. But for the most part, the rest of the time, we act as if we are our own God. We act as if there is no God or that God is turned to a blind eye, that God is unaware. We forget about God. As we go about our, our day-to-day lives, as we, we make the decisions we make, we, we say the things that we say, we treat people the way we treat them, we do the things that we do, we do it without regard to the truth that God is everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing. Maybe I'm the only sinner here, I don't know. Um, but, but with that understanding, tonight I'd just like to, to basically give what, what amounts to uh, a history lesson, um, one that God has used to remind me of just who he is and what a great God he is to remind me of the truth that that and to help me to remember that that everything happens according to God's will and his plan and in God's time. Micah chapter 1, verse 1, we read The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morasite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now this statement here at the opening of Micah's book gives us a date of when Micah was living. Micah ministered about 750 years before the birth of Christ. And and while this is going on, as he's ministering there in Judea and and, and to these kings and to the people, at the same time, there's a, a little village being founded on the banks of a river in Italy. This little village eventually grew to be the city of Rome, the capital of an empire unlike anything the world had ever seen. The Roman Empire was not only the largest empire, but it was one of the most influential and the longest lasting that the world has ever known. It eventually would encompass all of the Mediterranean. It would stretch from England to North Africa, from Spain to the Middle East. This was a vast empire, but it took a time for it to get there. At the time that it was just getting started, just being founded, the kingdom of Judah was at its height. Now, if you remember, initially the twelve tribes were united. Uh, they divided ten northern kingdoms, becoming the kingdom or ten northern tribes, becoming the kingdom of Israel. They were carried away into captivity by the Assyrians in, in 722. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, collectively known as, as Judah, survived and, and flourished and thrived and did well afterwards. Um, at this time, when Rome was being founded, Judah was at its height. You have kings like Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah. The Ones that are, that are bringing about revival and, and, and re-implementing worship and, and seeing God doing amazing, amazing things. Now fast forward to 586 B.C. and Judah Falls. The Babylonians come in and, and, and they take the people captive. The Babylonians were eventually conquered by, by a group called the Medes who were really a subset and, and run by the Persians. But each of those empires was basically the same as far as the lives and how it affected the Jews. These tri- these empires, the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians, they, they had this plan and this pattern. They would come in, they'd conquer the enemy army, they would take everything of value, not, not just material value, but also the best and the brightest people, right? The, you got Daniel and the, the Hebrew children carried out. They would take the others that they considered potential troublemakers, and they, they'd scatter them throughout the empire, get them away from each other. And everybody that was left, they'd, Every now and then come in and say, give us some more money. But essentially, they left them alone. They didn't really have a huge impact on the culture. They didn't have any huge and lasting impact on the people that they conquered. Fast forward again, and you get to Alexander. He comes in with the Greek Empire and conquers the Persians. Alexander did things differently. Alexander came in and said, we're going to unite all the people. They implemented what we call Hellenization. They said, we're going to start Greek towns. We're going to implement Greek philosophy. We're going to implement Greek worship. We're going to make sure that you start to assimilate our culture. We all become united in this. They introduced a language that outlasted that empire by a thousand years. Now, fast forward another bit further. After Alexander dies, one of his successors, Seleucus, one of his generals, see, when he died, he didn't have an heir. And so four of his generals split his empire. And the part that went to Seleucius was Syria and Judea. And then down to the south in Egypt was Ptolemy. And so Seleucius was in charge of Judea at this point. Seleucus did something different as well. He implemented a new taxation system. He implemented a system where a rich person bought the rights to tax their area. Right, it was called tax farming, and it meant that the person who gave the winning bid was allowed to do whatever they wanted. So you, you know, you, I win the bid, I give the king $10,000, and now I can collect sales tax and toll taxes and property taxes and vehicle registration fees and, and every other thing that you pay in taxes now, right? And whatever he wanted to get, that's how it worked, and that was fine. But even with that, life stayed the same. The culture in Judea was unchanged, stagnant just kind of plodding along day after day, doing their thing. Only, really, the only thing that changed was the name of the ruler, right? The Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, Seleucius, until the year 63 B.C. In the year 63 B.C., that's when the history of Judea and the entire world would be changed forever. That is when a Roman general, by the name of Pompey the Great, he conquered Jerusalem. And he established Roman authority in the area. 63 B.C., coincidentally, and I say that facetiously, I don't believe in coincidence, but in 63 B.C. was also the birthday of a, of a child in Italy. A young boy by the name of Gaius Octavius Thurinius. He was born to a middle class family. They were respectable, but not really all that important. At the age of four years old, Octavius' his dad died. His mom remarried and he's raised by her and his stepfather, but really he's, he's a nobody. So at 17, he joined the army, seeking to make his way in the world. And shortly thereafter, he was placed on the staff of General Julius Caesar. Now, Julius Caesar was so impressed by this young man, uh, who happened to be a a removed relative, a great nephew of his, that two years later, when Caesar was killed, after he was assassinated, Julius Caesar declared him as his heir. Julius Caesar named this 19-year-old, distant relative as his heir, even though he had his own son. He had a son that that had been born by Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. Seemed like that would be the more logical choice, but he chose Octavius, and after another decade of civil war, eventually Octavius was able to take complete control of Rome, and in the year 27 BC, he became the first emperor of Rome. Now, once he was made emperor as a honor to his great uncle and the one who had made him that heir he took the name of Caesar the Senate gave him a new title Augustus. this man was now crowned as Caesar Augustus and he was the most powerful man in the world he was uh, and he ushered in a time in Roman history world history that that's known as the the Pax Romana 200 years of peace and prosperity and growth and, and just wonderful achievements this is a time where the Roman Empire, changed all the mediterranean civilizations the mediterranean sea was cleared of pirates and, and travel abroad was, was made more feasible and safe this would eventually allow for men like paul to to travel to rome and men like titus to go to crete and, and other places men like the apostles to go to england and scotland and others um caesar augustus implemented infrastructure projects right? shovel ready projects they like to say they, they Under these projects, they they built aqueducts. They they built highways. Highways that connected the entire empire. Highways that allowed for people to travel in relative safety over long distances. Highways that, if they were not there, the task of Jesus and his disciples to travel up and down throughout Judea would have been much more difficult. But the highways allowed it to to be facilitated and go faster. But even as great as those things are, one of the most important changes that Octavius, Augustus, made was he changed the tax code and the tax system. While that that system of tax farming brought in revenue, it wasn't really the best idea, right? Because you didn't know how many people lived in what area. You didn't know, is that $10,000 a good price or should I have gotten 20? He didn't know if he could collect more. So he came up with a new system. If you hold your place in Micah, but turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone, into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Augustus decided he needed a new system. He he decided he was going to implement a census and charge a head tax. He was going to see who owned what, decide how many people he could count on for the military, how, how much infrastructure was needed, what kind of projects. And so it was his decree... That required Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem in order to be taxed. Caesar Augustus' decree made the whole earth move, humanly speaking. Humanly speaking, he was the greatest man on earth. Humanly speaking, he was, for a brief moment in time, the greatest king that the world had ever known. But all that changed in a moment when my king, the king, was born. See, Augustus may have been the most powerful man on earth, but he's still a man. And he still answered to the king. He may have thought that he answered to nobody. He may have thought that that through it all, he was in charge, but behind the scenes, God was working. Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. God was working things for our good. See, he may have ordered the seas cleared and, and roads built, but unbeknownst to him, it wasn't for his glory or for his honor or for his greatness or his legacy. It was for the glory of God, and it was for the furtherance of the gospel. He may have decreed that all the people had to go to, to their homes to be taxed, but God had issued another decree 1, 700 years earlier. When Judah was still that, that thriving kingdom and Rome was just a little speck on the map, a little nothing city, God had spoken and issued a decree through Micah. God had declared in Micah 5:2, But thou, Bethlehem, I always want to say it, Afreda, because that's how they say it in Washington. Afreda, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of these shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from from of old from everlasting. 700 years before the birth of Christ, God declared the Christ is coming. The king is coming, and here's how it's going to happen. This whole chapter of Micah chapter 5 talks about our Savior. It talks about his birth. It talks about his, his power. talks about his ultimate victory over the world. But this verse of, of scripture that I just read in Micah 5 2, which is uh, reiterated in Matthew 2 6, um, it all came together. It was all fulfilled perfectly 700 years after it was pinned. 700 years, God was working. For 700 years, God was moving the pieces, bringing it together. For 700 years, God was working and instrumenting and implementing the Greek language. That's the first language that was commonly understood among the world since the the Tower of Babel. God working to implement this tax system, which Augustus would get the idea to undo. 700 years of God working and taking a, a boy from obscurity and orchestrating his life in such a way that he would rule Rome instead of Julius Caesar's own son working and placing in his heart and in his mind this idea to send the whole world to their homes just so one man and his virgin bride could travel to a little town in a remote province on the fringes of of the Roman Empire. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. For 700 years, the Jews had experienced defeat. 700 years of foreign rule and oppression, 700 years of taxes, 700 years of injustice, it, may have, it must have seemed unbearable, it must have seemed unfair. It may have seemed that, that God had forsaken them. It may have seemed that, that God had simply moved on and abandoned them. It may have been real easy for them, it must have been real easy for them to, to look around at the world around them and to see these nations prospering, to see these godless people uh, having success, to see what the world calls success, to see their, their material gain and to say, I want that. I want what they have and I want to be like them and to forget the promise that God had made through Micah. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews thirteen five that we are to let, let your conversation be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We like to quote it, but do we live it? Maybe you're here tonight, and I don't know. Maybe you're here tonight and you're living in a time that you feel defeated, a time where you feel abandoned, a time where you're questioning and saying, God, what is going on? You look at the world around us and you say, God, are you paying attention to this? If it's this bad now, how must it have been in the days of Noah? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? maybe not collectively in society, but in your own life personally, you're saying, God, I don't understand what's happening. Where are we? What's going on? Let me reassure you, as God has reassured me, he is working. God has a plan, and God's plan has not changed. God is still on the throne, and God is still in control. God continues to influence each of our lives uh, for, for the good of those who love God. If you love God, God's working things for your good. If you don't love God, then you're still being used to work for our good. 700 years, God's people had to wait. 700 years between the promise made in Micah 5.2 and the fulfillment of it in Matthew 2.6 or, or the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. 700 years. Now That's been 2,000 years since Christ walked the earth in the flesh. And there are still prophecies that remain unfilled. 2,000 years. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God is not slack concerning his promises. He hadn't forgotten. As we read Luke chapter 2, we should remember that it's more than just the birth of a child, and it's more than just a Christmas story. It is the fulfillment of a promise of God, and it is evidence of God's hand in this world. This is proof of God's love and his care for his children it is a reminder that God has not left you, nor has he forsaken you. The Lord crowns kings. Augustus, Julius Caesar, Pompey, Alexander, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, whoever you want to say, Uzziah, Josiah, David, Solomon, on and on. all Great men, but men. And God placed each one of those men in the position where they were. Now most of them live their lives not realizing or acknowledging that there was one greater than themselves. A lot of times we live our lives not understanding that God is orchestrating our lives to fulfill his will. Yet God had a purpose for each one of them, just as he has a purpose for each one of us. We need to remember that God has ordained every man who has ever risen to power. We see that repeated in Romans. That means the ones that that we call good and the ones that we see in charge now. God put them there. Yeah. Now, sometimes God puts them there uh, to bring about the times of prosperity and joy and revival. Sometimes God puts them there because that's what we deserve and he wants to bring about repentance and change. But either way, they're there because it's God's plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God crowns kings and God causes men to move. So Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the world should be taxed and all went to be taxed. Joseph also went up. God orchestrated... All of these events, the tax code, the rise of Caesar, on and on and on, God orchestrated it to move these people. It is God who speaks to us in that still small voice. Much more loudly, God speaks to us through His Word and more clearly. It is God who commands and it is God who compels us to act upon His commands. We need to move when God issues a decree, God keeps His promises. There are times when it's very easy to feel like God has forgotten us. To feel like we have been abandoned. To feel like you you missed the boat. To feel like God is off somewhere else and you out of it and whatever it is that to feel like, where are we, God? We need to remember He's working. He is faithful. Everything occurs to His timetable and not ours. God has a purpose for each one of us here tonight. God is working through. Each one of us here tonight in our lives, we need to remember God is always there, often when we don't even realize it. That's when he's working the most. Right. And so this, this evening, as we, as we close the year and we begin another year, I would encourage you to, to look to the promises of God. May we remember his power and his authority. May we respond in submission to his will. May we trust in his purposes And in his timing in all things. May we remember, as Longfellow so eloquently put it in his Christmas poem, that God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. There is a God on the throne, a God who is working, a God who is deserving of our worship. We need to remember him in all things.